Welcome to the Deep Light Podcast from Park City's Presbyterian Church. This is a space for community, healing, hope, and education around topics of rescue and growth. Our prayer for this series is that it illuminates a deeper understanding of struggles within and around us, as well as God's profound love and redemptive light in Jesus Christ. Hi, my name is Mark Davis, and I serve as one of the pastors of Park City's Presbyterian Church. And today, uh, I'm excited to have Dr. Andrea Kim here to join us as we talk about uh, mental health and all the challenges that are going on in the world around us uh, that we're experiencing. So thanks for coming. It's my pleasure to be here. Before we jump in, though, uh, I want to start with a few passions. So when you and I were talking about the content of this interview, uh, where were you when we were having that conversation? (laughs) At one of my favorite places on earth, which was Costco. Yeah, yeah, shopping. Shopping at Costco. Yeah. And at Costco, what is your like favorite? What, where are you always going to go? What are you going to go for? I mean, I mean, this could be the whole podcast. We could, <laughs> um, I have definite areas that I hit up. Uh-huh. Um, I got to get my produce and I got to get my meat. Mm-hmm. And then I get my eggs and milk. And then I get my snacks. <laughs> so I have a lot of places. And how often do you go to Costco? Is that once a week? Every Tuesday. I Every got a lot Tuesday. A lot of mouths to feed. And so um, I stock up on Tuesday because that is produce day at Costco where they stock the produce. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't have told the whole world that. But yeah, because yes. thousands upon thousands <laughs> of people now have heard that. Okay, so a couple of other questions about passion. Yeah. What is your favorite food? Um, that's a hard one. I love food. And um, I would say that if I had to go down to one kind of food, I would probably pick Korean food. Korean food. Therefore, what is your favorite Korean restaurant? Oh, uh, well, it depends on what you want to eat. But um, (laughs) I would say there's a lot of good places by the H Martin Carrollton that um, we hit up a lot. It's a great spot. Yes. Okay. For sure. Two more questions. Uh, What is currently playing on your playlist most often? Um, So... I'm kind of, this is embarrassing, but I actually prefer silence Mm -hmm. in my car because Mm -hmm. um, my job is listening so much. Mm -hmm. So by the time I get to my car, I just like a quiet car. Um, The kids will ask me to play stuff all the time. So Mm -hmm. I think right now um, we've got Greatest Showman on my playlist right now. So That's good. We have it on ours a lot too. (laughs) All right. So we're going to talk today about a number of subjects that relate to really your calling. So you are a board certified psychiatrist here in Dallas. I am. And tell us a little bit about that journey. Um, When did you begin to sense, this is what I want to do? Yeah. um, It's uh, quite a story in itself. Um, When I went to college, I stumbled into Psych 101, like Mm -hmm. many people do, and I just loved it. I ended up majoring in that with um, combined with biology, so um, a double major. And then I went to med school not really thinking that I would ever pick psychiatry. I would pick something more traditional in medicine. And um, I ended up loving my med school rotation in psychiatry um, and really thrived and kind of enjoyed the work. Just it wasn't a drudge to get through. Mm. It was like, wow, this is kind of fun, but huh, who, could, who becomes a psychiatrist? And I moved on, and then in my internship um, as a resident, I um, became pregnant with my son. And um, I really kind of, it it was almost a light switch. I just had a totally different focus on what I wanted to be able to do with my life, and I kind of rethought everything got back on the table, and um, I realized that I really could be the mother I wanted to be and the wife I wanted to be um, if I went back to certain fields in medicine and one of them happened to be psychiatry, which I was like, well, actually I did love it. And even though it's a little bit of a oddball choice, uh, I went back and I got a spot and I have loved it. So that's how I began it. So where where did you go to school? Um, Medical school, Uh UT Southwestern. Okay, and then undergrad? Undergrad, I went to Harvard. Harvard, okay. Welcome to the club. (laughs) Just kidding. All right. Now, I want to ask this question, and it might be obvious to some, but what does a psychiatrist specialize in? So a psychiatrist will specialize in treating uh, the mind, um, mental disorders or mental illnesses, 
um, and that can be behavioral or thought disorders. Um, we generally use medications um, for, and then some psychiatrists will also still offer traditional psychotherapy, which is mm -hmm. kind of how it used to be when there weren't medications. Mm -hmm. So, so talk about the difference between you did you already introduced that, but between yeah. a psychiatrist, therapist, yeah. counselor. Yeah. So a psychiatrist um, went to medical school and. Um, kind of approaches it more from um, a medical model. Mm -hmm. So there's medication treatments, there's other interventions, there's medical diseases to rule out. Mm -hmm. uh, if you start to see psychiatric manifestation, labs ordered, imaging ordered if needed, um, and um, we'll start medication if appropriate. A therapist or a counselor would be somebody that invests also in the mind, but more in a long-term relationship, and they use the modality of talk and observation and frequency of visits. So you would see a counselor much more frequently than you would see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where kind of a lot of deep work happens is mm -hmm. in therapy. Mm -hmm. And I, I almost see myself in a lot of cases as a supporting role mm -hmm. to um, how much I prize that relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and I can help it along, but I don't really enjoy uh, it. It's, it's not a full treatment plan without therapy, in my opinion. Right, right. So. And in a minute, we'll talk about treatment, and, and maybe we can unpack that a little bit more, how yeah. that relationship works yeah. together with the individual that's struggling. But let's talk a little bit about trends first. Mm -hmm. um, how long have you been practicing? Um, gosh, altogether, I think I've been practicing maybe 14, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And then in private practice, I've been practicing eight years. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what's different today than when you first started? Is anything different? Yeah. What are trends? What's the trajectory that we're on? So I think in a good sense, I think even in the past eight years, people are much more open about mental health. Mm -hmm. They're much more willing to seek treatment, recommend so many of my new patients that come in have been referred by other patients, mm -hmm. which is a great trend, um, but also means that other patient was willing to say, hey, I see a psychiatrist. And mm -hmm. I feel like even 10 or 20 years ago, that would be the hush yeah. story of the family and you would never say anything. And so um, the joke was when I got into practice, um, half the people would say, oh, I could never do what you do. And the other half would say, can I get your business card <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for my family member yeah. or my friend? Yeah. So um, I feel like that's been a trend is people are much more open about mental health days, mental health needs, um, understanding their emotions. Um, and especially since the lockdown, I mean, mm -hmm. that's just really, I think we're going to look back and see it's a new chapter in mental health yeah. since March 2020. Um, so I see that. I also see probably um, just just the phone is getting to be more of a thing, I think, than even eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and just how much that is devices and, um, I guess, lack of interaction mm -hmm. and all the things. I mean, hundreds of books have been written about this, but just what technology is doing to people and families and children, I think it's, it's interesting and, you know, almost... We can't extricate ourselves. It's mm -hmm. just so entrenched now so quickly. So quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is a revolution. Totally. It's happening so fast. So talk about that. How does that manifest itself? What are the mental health issues that people are coming to seek help for as it relates to those things? Yeah, very few people come to me and say, hey, I'm addicted to my phone. Mm -hmm. um, and especially with the adolescent crowd, you really have to parse out how many hours are you on it, when are you on it, what are you doing instead of, uh, instead of what you're doing, or supposed to be doing, what are you doing on, mm -hmm. uh, how much time are you spending on it. But um, I see a lot of anxiety mm -hmm. and um, a lot of comparison. I feel like um, there's a standard that's too high that mm -hmm. kids just can't be kids. They're not kids compared to the, every other kid. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's, I think it even spreads to families where, um, parents can be checked out when they're all like no one's everyone's in the home everyone's in their own rooms you know looking at a screen and that's how they spend every evening after dinner and mm -hmm. I'm not saying you know the perfect family is all on top of each other on the couch I'm just saying um, it seems like there's just less interaction less time to just let conversations flow right mm -hmm. and so I, I have no doubt these parents love their kids but 
think everyone's just looking at their phone. Yeah. So I'm guilty too. Sure, sure. sure. Yeah. It's always there. And I mean, I know your family, we've spent time together as yeah. families and with other families and we see the dynamics of what that uh, is like and the challenges that are there. Talk about anxiety for a minute. Yeah. Obviously, I, as a pastor, I meet with people all the time. It's yeah. like the common cold. Everybody's got <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, but what's the difference between, yeah, I've got a level of anxiety yeah. versus I really need help. Right. This anxiety is consuming me. Right. First off, I think a the individual can sense what, uh, well, let me back up. I think anxiety is highly rewarded in our society because mm-hmm. it produces results and it produces success and it produces um beauty and you know people are going to succeed especially in the city with some element of anxiety you get through medical school because of anxiety Mm -hmm. i mean there's nothing wrong with a little bit of healthy anxiety i think when it spills over um we always define a disorder by having social or occupational or life dysfunction so it needs to impact your life it needs to change how you socialize it needs to change how you're approaching your life goals, or if you're approaching them at all. Um, a lot of times, I'll almost, well, this is a not part of the definition, but almost always sleep is impacted mm-hmm. if you're just wrought with, with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you just feel like you're running from a bear and there's no bear and you feel like that all day long, mm-hmm. um, or you cannot stop the thought, the worry in your mind over and over again, it's like, um, it's like a metronome almost mm-hmm. all day. These are kind of things that people will say to me, but most importantly, um, they there needs to be something going on in their life that they're not they're not achieving or they're not enjoying their life. Um, then we would call it more in the disorder realm. So something I loved how you described that something has changed, something they're not able to do anymore, right. or they can't focus on, or whatever it might be, right. and it's born out of that angst that's really consuming, as opposed to just a a normal or even a healthy worry. Right. And remember, the normal is a spectrum. There mm-hmm. are people who just run a little anxious. Their family mm-hmm. always does. And they're loving life. And they, you know, so it's, it takes a really skilled listener to understand, is this, is this a change from your baseline? Is this getting you down? Right? Mm-hmm. Too much anxiety can get you down after a while because you're mm-hmm. just like, I have another day of this. But if you have um, someone just listening and saying, what were you like before? What's changed? What are the thoughts? Mm-hmm. What how often are they happening? How severe is it? How long do they last? Is it sun up to sundown? Is it, are you waking in the middle of the night? I mean, so pe- there's a lot of ways to figure out if anxiety is more than just, oh, I've got a public speaking thing mm-hmm. tomorrow. I'm anxious. Or I've got mm-hmm. a test tomorrow. I'm anxious. Um, but a good listener is going to, because we all throw the world around. Mm-hmm. We throw the word around. Um, right. That I'm so, I'm so busy. I'm so anxious. I'm overwhelmed. And then um, but I t- we in my field we take those words really seriously, and mm-hmm. I think um, maybe in with just your friends you would just say oh, I'm totally overwhelmed, right? But if you say overwhelmed to me, we're gonna actually unpack that word and yeah. say what does that mean to be overwhelmed? Are you throwing it around, or is it really you feel like you are under a storm? Are you being knocked over by a wave of anxiety? Mm-hmm. So, so how would you, how can you determine that when when like what kind of questions would you ask to help yeah. someone understand? their level of being overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. So, you know, with overwhelmed or anxiety, you know, I'll just, I'll define it. I'll say, hey, it's a state of being nervous, tense on edge. Um, And it's about um, an an inordinate amount of worry about things that may or may not be realistic, Mm -hmm. right? You don't, it doesn't actually have to be irrational. Mm -hmm. It could be really rational. Um, And then um, with those two, then I, you know, we start to get into how is it impacting your job, your school? your friends, your grades, mm-hmm. your um, family life. How are you at home? Um, are you turning down social invitations? Are you different than what you used to be? Mm-hmm. Are you happy with the way you are, right? So just a, and a million more like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. We, we ask a lot of those questions. That's fascinating because I do think people throw around those words all the time. Uh-huh. I remember my youngest daughter, when she was really little, said, I'm overwhelmed. I'm like, you're not overwhelmed. <laughs> Truth was, she really yeah, was overwhelmed. In her you world. know, we begin to unpack that a little bit more and realize, yeah. okay, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. Talk about the the relationship between anxiety and depression. Yeah. And then depression as its own category. Yeah. So um anxiety is its own thing. Mm-hmm. Depression is its own thing. The two are often go together. Mm-hmm. Um high anxiety for enough time can be considered 
a severe life stressor, just like any other thing, loss of a pet, a move, a divorce, mm -hmm. right? But living with a chronic high level of anxiety can be enough to get you down. And mm -hmm. so by, and by down, I don't mean, I mean more than down, I mean depression. Mm -hmm. Depression is its own thing. It's a little bit more um, inherited, not all, um, but um, more than anxiety is mm -hmm. an inherited. Actually, we consider anxiety to be a modeled disorder. Mm, interesting. So if usually mom or dad in the story um, ran, ran anxious and normal was to freak out, the whole family freaks out if we're late. Like that's just normal. That's what we do. And so a lot of these behaviors can be caught by um, seeing the parents, um, not always, and definitely um, can be learned later on, can be learned, oh, if I am anxious, I get all A's, right? Mm -hmm. some, some of that stuff can go down the, down the line. Um, depression can happen on its own out of nowhere, and it can happen after a severe life stressor. Um, I conceptualize depression as uh, what we call the two-hit hypothesis, which is you kind of inherit the, the deck of cards you inherit, mm -hmm. and then you have life stress. And the bigger deck of cards you have for depression genetically, uh, the less life you need to have, or life at all, before yeah. you go into an episode. Mm -hmm. But um, anyone with enough of a stressor or enough of a life hit can become depressed. It'd be harder too if you really didn't have any genetics for depression mm -hmm. and you know interesting theories on resilience and why some people don't get depressed. But they, you know, we do know that you are more prone to depressive episodes easier and more frequently if you've just got a lot of that running through your family, mm -hmm. as you might expect. So in your uh, interview with the person at the beginning, you're trying mm -hmm. to discern what genetic makeup they might have yeah. for depression. Yeah. Um, what are other signs that a person should pay attention to as it relates to depression? So depression, you know, the hallmark, of course, is sadness mm -hmm. or a loss of interest in things that formerly interested you, interested you mm -hmm. which is... Um, maybe actually how some hu some people can realize, if, especially if they're not very in tune with their emotions, they realize, I really love to do that thing and I just don't care about it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and then alternately, most people can identify with sadness, dread, gloom and doom, mm -hmm. the black cloud, the black dog, mm -hmm. uh, like Winston Churchill said. Yep. Um, and so you need to have one of those two. It needs to be profound, mm -hmm. right? So not this light. You know, it needs to be a deep sense of sadness. Then there are some other changes that happen, and you can't just have sadness, interestingly. You need to have either sleep changes, appetite changes, um, feelings of guilt or worthlessness, energy, usually drain, low energy, um, something we call psychomotor activity changes, mm -hmm. um, and then thoughts of suicide. Okay. You don't have to have all of them. You need to have five out of nine of them, and they need to be what I say is most of the day, nearly every day for two weeks or more. Okay. That was, that's what we call a major depressive episode. Um, that's textbook, and the, it's a textbook. So yeah. a, a lot of people aren't textbook, and doesn't mean I won't treat them, but that's kind of what we see as a classic major that's, depressive episode. That's really helpful, though, to understand that, because I've never heard that before. That's really interesting to see how you gauge that. Yeah. You mentioned it can't be just sadness. So if it is just sadness, what do you call that? I call that sadness. Okay, good. <laughs> so let me be clear. You call that sadness. Yes, I, I call it sadness. It's not uh, insignificant because mm -hmm. I feel like even sadness alone can change mm -hmm. your life and it can affect you and you can want to crawl into a hole, but you may not have all these, you know, yeah. the nice neat box of five out of nine symptoms for two weeks or more. And I think sadness, especially, you know, my, I, I like to see things coming down the road. Mm -hmm. So if I see sadness coming down and I know that person really wanted the promotion and they lost it and um, lost it to their mortal enemy, that kind of thing, and they're really sad, then I, just, I, you know, I push them back into therapy. I'm like, hey, we need to process this in therapy. Mm -hmm. We need to, um, we need to, don't just stuff that. Like, mm -hmm. let's get it out. Let's understand. Let's re reframe. Let's mm -hmm. understand the truth about that yeah. loss. And so, um, yeah, that's how I would treat just sadness. So sadness, and even if it's prolonged sadness, doesn't necessarily mean you're depressed, mm -hmm. but it also means you need you still need help. Yeah. You still need to work through that. Yeah. What's the connection to sadness and grief? 
So grief is uh, not a disorder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Humans will all grieve at mm-hmm. one time. So we don't call that a disorder. Um, there used to be a term called pathological bereavement, and that's where it crosses over into a land that most grieving people don't go to. And mm-hmm. that might be, um, for instance, if there's death, an identification with a dead, a wanting to join the dead, mm-hmm. um, an over-responsibility over for a death that you had nothing to do with, mm-hmm. right? Um, but in general, grief is common, expected, not a disorder, not something we medicate. Um, we encourage, I just encourage a lot of healthy habits. I encourage them to not hold themselves up. Mm-hmm. Um, that to cry is fine. And what we know, what I see with grief is that it comes in waves. So the first couple of weeks, it's huge waves and it's a lot of the hours of the day. Mm-hmm. And then um, you might, but you might come up and laugh at something funny. You might get hungry. You might, you know, um, spend time with a friend and then another wave will hit you. You'll have a reminder, you'll have another wave and you'll cry and cry and cry. Mm-hmm. Eventually over time, the waves start to get smaller and less frequent. And that's actually a really healthy grieving process. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when they come back to me after a big loss, I just say, how are the waves? Are, mm-hmm. they, are they shorter? Are they less intense? Did you have more lighter moments? Did you have more clearing of the sky? Or how are the clouds in the sky? I, mm-hmm. I talk about that with one patient. Like, mm-hmm. she's like, mostly cloudy. And I'm like, all right. And so, you know, we can, we can use that metaphor too. Yeah. So you're giving them pictures to help describe what they're experiencing so you can help evaluate yeah. where you think they are. For sure. So you mentioned March 2020. March 2020. Yeah. Talk to me more about that. What <laughs> what what's escalated? What what do you see more of than anything? I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that. I feel like whatever you were, you were worse. Mm-hmm. And um, so marriages that weren't strong going in fell apart. Mm-hmm. Marriages that were super healthy thrived. Um I don't, I don't know about thriving. I don't know if anybody thrived. In the, maybe some people. Th- the introverts thrived for a while, right? <laughs> um, but um, addictions came back out, sending people to rehab a lot during those first, you know, six to eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, and depression got worse. I will say the people who did the best were people who were my long-term patients. Mm-hmm. They had me. You couldn't get in to see anybody. It was mm-hmm. all televisits, and then everyone was full. Mm-hmm. And even today, yeah. everyone's full. Um, therapists, psychiatrists, we have these huge wait lists. But if you already had an established relationship, you're already on medication, I'd seen you, you know, for years, you had your therapist, it was an easy transition to go virtual yeah. with me, with with therapist, because you already had that mental picture of that person and, mm-hmm. you know, you understood their personalities and um, their body language. You didn't need to read their body language mm-hmm. for the first time. And I feel like that was... Um, those were my most stable people, but all the new people coming in were just flat on their back. Mm-hmm. It was um, isolation, a lot of worry about health, and then, of course, worry about everything else mm-hmm. that you can think of. Every word you can think of regarding the pandemic, there'd be worry about it. Um, people who could not stand to be home and work, um, and the people who were terrified of ever going back to work. Mm-hmm. So it was really, you know, kind of across the board. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the word anxiety could apply to most people. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I mean, including myself. I think it was mm-hmm. a really uncertain time for all of us. Now, you know, the world's kind of opened up. And the calls don't stop coming. I almost feel like it just, just because you got to go back to work and because, you um, your kids got to go back to school and because you got the vaccine and, you know, you can do more things. I just feel like it's almost opened up something that maybe we're all too busy and too scheduled to notice mm-hmm. um, until you were forced to sort of look at yourself yeah. with all the time. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah, a lot of good can come from A lot that. of good, yeah. So let's talk for a few minutes about treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've covered a number of of issues, anxiety, depression, et cetera. But what what are the various treatments that are available? Yeah. So we can start with anxiety. The mm-hmm. anxiety, the first line treatment is talk therapy. Mm-hmm. It is not medications. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't actually even see a person for the first time if they're not in therapy. Mm-hmm. Because I'm just going to say go to therapy for if they're not severe. Go to therapy for a few months and then come back to me. So. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because we as human beings have the ability to uh, think about our thoughts, mm -hmm. right? That's kind of a gift that we've been given. Um, and so anxiety is one of those things where you can actually think about the thought and weigh the thought, balance the thought, is it a true thought? You know, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Um, and so that's with anxiety. The second line treatment, let's just say you're in it, you're working really hard, and just every day is a struggle mm -hmm. because the anxiety is still so bad, you're buzzing all the time, your, mm -hmm. your heart rate's always going, then um, they a therapist might refer that person to me mm -hmm. and I would start a medication just to sort of lower the symptoms of anxiety. It mm -hmm. does, it would lower worry and it would lower the bodily symptoms of anxiety. It doesn't change that person. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change their fears or what triggered in the first place. Mm -hmm. They're just, um, it just makes the noise less. They're still, they're still them. I mm -hmm. mean, they're, they're still have their triggers and their life experiences and their childhood upbringing and you know, all the things that make them them is still there, but just the, the clutter and noise in their head we can quiet a little bit with medication. So how, how does that work? Can you tell us about that? Sure, so there's um, different circuits in your brain that do different things. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them is a very well-established anxiety circuit meant to keep us alive. So it's got um, you know your visual input um, and it's going and it's designed to get us to run, to get our eyes dilated to have our heart rate go up, like all these things designed to keep us alive from a wild animal chasing us. Um, and then um, there are there are some breaks that mm -hmm. you can put on that system. Okay, one is um, serotonin. Mm -hmm. So that's why these medications that we traditionally use called antidepressants can work for anxiety because um, over time it can it can force that system to a crawl instead of a runaway train. Mm -hmm. um, Therapy, you know, what I tell patients a lot is, okay, if this room was dark that we're in and there was, um, well, there kind of is, cords, coiled mm -hmm. up cords, and it was dark and we walked in, and for one second you might jump and you might say, is that a snake? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's your amygdala keeping you alive, mm -hmm. <laughs> doing the Rolodex of emotional memories, and then it's just going, and then your frontal cortex will come in and say, well, it's uniform, it's twisted on itself, it's dried, it's frayed at the end, there's no head, there's no eyes. I think that's a rope. And so all that, it's got its Rolodex, it's comparing it to. And so the executive function of your frontal cortex can turn off the amygdala. And that is a really quick and fast thing we do all the time. Fender bender on the highway, oh, I'm alive. I'm okay, I'm not hurt, I'm not veering off into the wall, mm -hmm. calm down. So we do that really fast and in therapy, you, there's more steps to it, but that's essentially what you're doing is you're trying to get the amygdala to say, it's okay, it's, it's even if it was a snake, mm -hmm. we, we have options, right? Mm -hmm. That's our million other things to think about that mm -hmm. good therapists can go through, but it's employing that frontal cortex, which is the seat of executive functioning and really does direct traffic, right? We, and we're trying to get control over a, a little bit, um, a runaway amygdala. So that's what we're doing. Serotonin will just help stop it, um, which is fine as long as it's on. Mm -hmm. People want to get off. I say, okay, well, you need to be in therapy if you want to get off the medication mm -hmm. because you need a while it's quiet and you don't have to struggle with the noise in your head, you need to be actually challenging your thoughts, relearning new thoughts, making them automatic so that when we do take off the medication, it's um, less quick to fire. Mm -hmm. So that's kind and of- And sometimes people would, need the medicine to even be able to begin to practice the things that they're learning in therapy, the tools Absolutely. that they've been given. Yes. Because the mind is so anxious that they can't really employ those things. I see a real spirit of defeat when they come in because they don't want to <laughs> they don't want to be with me. They don't mm -hmm. want medication. They want to do therapy and they mm -hmm. want to do the homework. But it's just overwhelming them to even take the next step, to open the book, to write down their journal thoughts, right? It's just it's too much. And so I tell them I'm really a supporting role. To, and I really do feel like I've been given a great role that's a supporting role. It's mm -hmm. not the starring role. But I get to help them then have a little bit more calm in their mind mm -hmm. to then do some really hard things, mm -hmm. which is, ah, that reminded you of what your dad said when you were eight. Mm -hmm. Like, that hurts. Let, let's talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. That's all the therapy stuff. Um, and the medicine just helps them. 
it, it helps the it helps the process go faster. Mm-hmm. I also say that like yes, you, you can absolutely one hundred percent succeed in therapy. It's going to be a long and hard ride, or I can make it a little quicker. Mm-hmm. And and then I'm gonna and I'm gonna I'm gonna space that ghost out. I'm gonna mm-hmm. be gone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for the time period when you're working so hard, I would love to assist you. So let's talk about some of the uh, stereotypes or biases against medicine, especially in yeah. faith communities. Yeah. You know, a lot of people feel like it's anxiety. If I have more faith, it would go away. And that's probably true even of depression. Yeah. Um, I think that's changing, mm-hmm. I think, in a good way. But a lot of people still seem to have that resistance that if I was a strong enough Christian, if I was more faithful, if I really believed, mm-hmm. I could fight these things. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think about that? What, do you, yeah. what are your words there? So my thought about that is that there is always an, a, for a believer, faith is essential. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the brain fell in the fall like yeah. every other organ. And there's no reason to think that our brain was preserved to be able to adequately fight all disease and disorder, um, unlike any other organ in our system, which can have a disease. So I try just try to tell them that it's it's part of this is um, the the genes started to fall too, right? So we get some genetic disorders too. Mm -hmm. There's some more predispositions. Mm -hmm. One way where where the fight is really hard Mm -hmm. for you versus another person, and then that. Um, to me, I feel like medication is a means of grace. It mm-hmm. is a way to take care of yourself and um, live out your faith. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there now I I love my job because it gets really nuanced and sticky, and I can go back and forth right in front of the patient. So, you know, I say if there is glaring issues, right? I mean. You know, why are you with that married man, right? <laughs> Something mm-hmm. like that. Then, you know, medication's not really gonna mm-hmm. improve much. But if you have a, as far as you know, a clean heart, I don't think God's this like trickster. Mm-hmm. Like you have to come find it, find that sin that mm-hmm. you don't know about and confess it. Otherwise, I'm just gonna give you anxiety and depression your rest of the life. I just don't, I just think he's a kind and good God. And if you have examined your heart as best as you can, then he's good in that way. And then if it's still a struggle, then I'm, I'm like, I would, I would treat just like I would treat your infection with an antibiotic. I mm-hmm. would just, I would just treat it. There's not a reason to just keep whipping yourself over. And actually that's religious scrupulosity is definitely something I have started to see in eight years mm-hmm. in practice, which is um, the other extreme. It's on the OCD spectrum. It's intrusive thoughts. It's. Mm-hmm. What if I'm not saved? Let me say the salvation prayer. Let me if I'm not saved. So they say mm-hmm. the salvation prayer 500 times a day. Mm-hmm. They have um, specific orders. They need to do things. Um, and so there's a lot of, I, I would say, almost extreme guilt, um, spiritual guilt mm-hmm. or spiritual doubt. And that's, um, they understand it's not in their faith system and that it shouldn't be true, but they're like, just in case. Where does that come from? <sighs> OCD is... Uh, well, there's a whole you know spectrum of disorders in the OCD uh, obsessive compulsive disorder mm-hmm. realm. Um, we think obsession, thought, and urge, mm-hmm. compulsion, behavior, reduce urge, anxiety is lowered, and then rinse and repeat. That's traditional OCD. Maybe like a hand washing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a little part in the brain. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can fire off. Um, and when we um, the, when you can actually have just obsessional thinking now, mm-hmm. which actually I see more, and it's very hard because the 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 treatment for OCD is called exposure response prevention, which is get your hands dirty and you can't wash it in the therapy session. Let's watch your anxiety rise and let's watch your anxiety fall. And oh, you didn't, the worst didn't happen. What whatever you thought the worst was, but with thinking, it's much harder mm-hmm. because how do you not have the thought, mm-hmm. right? So um, I've been seeing a lot more of that religious scrupulosity. That's um, almost the other side of taking it too seriously. I mean, taking or blaming it all on uh, the magic, magical spell of faith. So that's really interesting. So when when somebody has those symptoms, that's their life. You know, from mm-hmm. you know washing the hands, intrusive mm-hmm. thoughts about faith. Mm-hmm. What should they do? Where should they go for help? What would be the first thing they should do? Well, I think there's still a lot of really good 
OCD specialty therapists, mm -hmm. especially in our town, mm -hmm. that um, this is what they deal with. It's almost like an explosion since the lockdown is mm -hmm. just, and you would think maybe, oh, virus-friendly obsessions and compulsions or illness, anxiety disorder, but it's really everything came out. I, I really mean everything came out when, mm -hmm. when the lockdown happened and including, I think, OC, maybe some hidden OCD. Mm -hmm. So um, they would, you know, there's a lot of, therapeutic tech thinking techniques you can give to someone with just intrusive thinking. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a specialist, but I send people to specialists and I'm always like, what did you learn? <laughs> Tell me what you learned. Uh, and um, I think a helpful strategy is the so what, right? The so what strategy. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I just thought I lost my salvation again. So what? So what? And then you try to take the, deflate the thought. So it's still there, but mm -hmm. it has little impact on your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of many, many, many techniques that they have. Um, bad OCD has um, a lot of heritability. So I'm a little bit more, okay, we need to push, put you on some medications mm -hmm. for OCD. Because that's a very hard thing to just people to say, okay, well, go meta, look at your thoughts, reevaluate your thoughts, and turn off your OCD. Because mm -hmm. OCD can, can be severe, debilitating. For extreme cases, there's brain surgery. I mean, it can be a real, mm -hmm. a real thing. So, um, again, there's serotonin is a break on that circuit. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm using antidepressants, but now I have to go to much higher doses yeah. to turn off the OCD. But I can. Yeah. So. so, talk a little bit more about depression and treatment there in regards to medicine. Yeah. So depression. Um, again, I'm a. I'm, I'm, I am a supporting player. I may play a bigger part mm -hmm. uh, because some people just don't need much to get depressed. Mm -hmm. There's just so much heritability in it. Um, so depression, the first, there are two first-line treatments. It's talk therapy and medication because I just said in anxiety, talk therapy's first and, and medication second. But with depression, they're both first-line treatments and the studies would show that they work better together than either leg alone, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Usually, of course, in my practice, they'll be in therapy. If they're not, I'm sending them to a therapist immediately. And um, then if they come in, and we always do it. I mean, every new patient I get, I do a safety check. So I'm deciding how severe is this? Do I How much do I intervene? Am I putting them somewhere else mm -hmm. for their safety? But let's say it's not, and it's just bad depression, but they're safe to be home. Um, then I would probably start a medication mm -hmm. yeah, at the same time as therapy. So you talked about the um, the rise in the number of people that are seeking help. Yeah. So that means it's hard to get in. Hard I mean, the in. schedules are out. And I know that personally. You know, yeah. it's just like, ah, you know, okay. Yeah. So what do you tell someone who, you know, whether it's an individual or it's parents, they've got an anxious middle schooler or high school student, and they call a particular counselor or a mm -hmm. counseling group or a psychiatrist and like, okay, it's today's November 10th. Um, we'll see you in February. <laughs> you know, what, what do you, what do you, it's a real yeah. thing. So yeah. what, what do you do? What's, what's the steps I should take there? Well, um, just as a mom, I would, uh, I get on everyone's cancellation list. Mm. I'm ready to drop what I'm doing and get my kid and I'm going to go, go to that, whatever, pediat pediatrician or a specialist, right? So mm -hmm. I get on cancellation lists. I go ahead and get the first appointment booked because you never know. Mm -hmm. And um, everywhere I go, I'll start booking the first appointment. Yeah. Um, I will um, ask them who they recommend. So I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. because I trust, if I trust enough to make an appointment with them, then they might know about, you know, six or seven other people that I can just, and I would just spend the morning, call, mm -hmm. call, call, get on their wait list, get on their first availables. Mm -hmm. There's also now a ton of virtual opportunities in mental health. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of telepsychiatry companies that have come up. These people can see any state. I mean, they may not, I, I, I think it's harder, especially mm -hmm. for an adolescent to do that virtually. Sure. But at least you could start something. Your insurance company may have something. Your employer may have something. Like they, there's so much mental health need that people have really risen as much as they could in COVID. So um, plenty of, I mean, I think some of these colleagues of mine have switched to 100% telepsychiatry. Like they don't even see, they don't have an office anymore. Wow. Because uh, it's just become such an easy and what, you know, they they would find it to be very effective. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say there's, you can see somebody while you're waiting for the one you want. Yeah. Yeah. Then you have, um, I would just keep calling. There's going to be somebody in Dallas. 
um, there's there's going to be a ton of counseling. You can obviously we want ones that are recommended, but mm-hmm. you know if you you can get on Google and find some. You can call somebody like you and see what mm-hmm. if the church knows anybody. Yeah. So just not giving up. That's what I see as I tried and they were full. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, you got to work harder in 2021. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good counsel. Yeah. What should people look for as they're trying to find a psychiatrist or a therapist? Yeah, that's a good question. I think at first we all like recommendations. Um, I would... I love recommendations with a grain of salt, just mm-hmm. like I do with any other doctor recommendation I get, mm-hmm. because it's all about the connection. So what one person might rave about a person, the other person might not find a mm-hmm. connection with or feel that they didn't weren't heard very well. I would say at the first meeting, you can get a lot more information. Um, you know, Carl Rogers talks about the unconditional positive regard that a mm-hmm. therapist should have for a client, meaning they don't have to prove everything they do, but you need to feel like, they they like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't they don't hate your guts. Yeah. Um, and so that feeling where you feel I was respected and it was a professional experience and I felt like I heard I told my whole story and I feel like they could reflect back to me mm-hmm. my concerns and my stories. I felt like I got a good treatment plan going on and um, all my questions and worries were adequately addressed or at least addressed and even if the answer was I don't know um just what you would expect at a regular doctor I mean just with more time and um a lot more time is given to the individual to talk Mm -hmm. just to talk 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 so um if they're keeping it too short or they're cutting you off or you know if they're not at least apologizing for cutting you off and understanding that that wasn't the way they like to do practice then Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't like to see that. Yeah, so. yeah, that's really good. So I know that um, many people who are watching this mm-hmm. uh, might be members of our church, followers of Christ, or are exploring, mm-hmm. seeking whether or not Christianity is real. What role do you think faith plays in you know, facing all these dynamics? Hmm. Which dynamics? Well, just something's broken. You know mm-hmm. how I feel, whether it's you know self-diagnosed anxiety or mm-hmm. even self-diagnosed depression. What do I need to think about the way I'm made in the image of Christ and For sure. the union I have with Christ as a believer or potential somebody who's maybe seeking Christ? What role might that have in helping me through this? Well, I think that's that gives you all the hope in the world mm-hmm. that there's a God who loves you perfectly and understands exactly the misery you're going through because his son walked through it. And mm-hmm. I just think that that alone may not bring relief, but at least can bring comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, I think faith is huge in this process because um, a lot of people isolate and turn away from everything. Um, and if they are a believer, then of course that's the most painful relationship to turn away from, right? Mm-hmm. So in in the, in the hurt is where you turn for help even if you're filled with doubt or if you're keep thinking you're losing your salvation mm-hmm. in your in your heart you keep turning back and um you keep going to church and you keep meeting with the people that you meet with and you keep reading the word and you keep praying um i think faith and it, it can feel dry mm-hmm. it can feel fake but i just encourage them okay just keep going mm-hmm. because you know you know that and part of this is some, you know, skills that people have to learn, but you know, our emotions are informative, but fickle. Mm-hmm. They help us understand ourselves, but they're not necessarily trustworthy. Mm-hmm. So um, they come and they go. And there's a whole thing called mindfulness where you just watch your, you live in the present and you watch your feelings come and they go. Mm-hmm. And um, you realize the feelings are not you per se. And so, you know, I just encourage them what is true, what is not going to change even though you feel like it may not be true. Like, mm-hmm. and then operate out of that and just keep doing it. Behavioral activation, smile and you feel better. Mm-hmm. These really tiny studies were really interesting. If we mm-hmm. smile, we feel better. Um, you just do it and then, um, so I just say, just go work out. I don't, if you don't feel like it, and of course I have to temper that with, you know, the day you feel like it, just go do it because mm-hmm. you'll feel better. You don't mm-hmm. have to feel all the way like you really want to mm-hmm. exercise or something, but, um, 
Sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, that's, that's really helpful <laughs> because I think sometimes if we don't feel immediate relief or some yeah. kind of emotional response to it, then it's not worth continuing to do. Right. And I think that's really unhealthy, you know, as opposed to, nope, just continue to yeah. avail yourselves of the means of grace just until you see yes. the results. Now. And in a church where there is more openness, you know someone else just went through this. And you can call them up and, or you can say, oh, I saw her go through this and come out and she just kept coming to church. And, you know, there's, there's just the, the witness that we can have for one another in encouraging each other and saying, oh, I've been there and it's bad, but well, I'll go with, through it with you and I'll, I'll help you through it. And we'll um, just keep coming. Just keep, don't, don't stay home. Just don't stay home. Or, uh, yeah, I know earlier you talked about comparison. You know, mm-hmm. and I think one of the great strongholds in our culture, in Dallas, in our church, is is fear of man. It is when I feel something's broken or wrong with me, I'm the only one. And though we know theologically that's not true, yeah. we can find the scriptures that prove that, we still sense that I can't tell anybody. Nobody mm-hmm. else can see this. And I know that's not true, but so many people feel that way. They feel that isolation, that I'm the only one in this particular place that's going through this. Yeah. Um, what do you say to that? How do we blow that up? Oh my goodness! Without violating HIPAA, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just can only imagine in your in your shoes and in mine uh, together. We just know the truth of it mm-hmm. that there's so much suffering mm-hmm. um, behind shiny people, mm-hmm. you know, and you would never know it, but it is prevalent. It's there. And like I said, this is kind of an exciting time where mm-hmm. people are just more willing to talk about it. And um, depression is something you could just, yeah, I've had depression. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I've had strep throat. I mm-hmm. mean, it's like getting to be where you can talk about this is what helped me. This is the therapist I like. This is the medication I was on. And, yeah. um, and I think when there's an open culture of just mental health kind of being um, – and it's even better in a church setting because we're all weaving what is faith mm-hmm. and what is mental health, mm-hmm. right? And I think to understand that fully is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why my I love my job. It's just it's, it's there's no easy answer for anything I say. But um, in a church with more openness and transparency, and with talks like these, and with you know educational meetings, um, and I've talked a couple times for the church, and I've gotten some people to just come up and say thank you for just. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe the room was full of people who wanted to learn about depression. And so um, just those connection times, I think all the, the groups that the church does, yeah. just just like I feel like the time has come where a lot of people are done with pretense Yeah, in this maybe decade. Yeah. And so I think there's a real potential to um, take advantage of that in a, in a godly way mm-hmm. in uh, church. I think... I think maybe the world takes advantage of it in an ungodly way, but um, mm-hmm. in the church, we can really take advantage of that. I love that. And I love how you talked about shiny, shiny people. <laughs> um, because the whole purpose of this podcast is really to help people. And you can tell you love your job. And yeah. that really is the burden of your heart. And we know that many people still feel they, they can't tell somebody that they're even sitting next to in the pew or even in a small group with. But we hope that this will expose people to the opportunities that exist for them to get help, to know that we are all fallen. Yeah, We have been saved by God's profound grace and mercy and love, which his mercies are made new each day. Mm-hmm. But the impact on our bodies, on our minds, on our soul mm-hmm. is, is real. For sure. And you don't need to suffer in that in isolation. So la- last thing let's talk about. Um, if someone were to call, make an appointment with you, mm-hmm. what what could they expect? What would that experience be like uh, when they come into your office? And um, just to try to take away like what yeah. stereotypes or fears might be there. What, what's going to happen? I yeah. mean, are they laying on a couch? Are they? <laughs> you know, what is, what's going to happen? So um, there's a couch. It's very comfy. Mm-hmm. Um, you could lay down on it if you want. I've never had anybody take me up on that. <laughs> I've never offered it, actually. Um, we still do have true psychoanalysts in Dallas, and that would be the couch and turned away from the therapist in the chair. Mm-hmm. So you can't actually see their, there's no, there's no feedback. Mm-hmm. So you're, it's, it is kind of fascinating where mm-hmm. you start to project 
your own thoughts of what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but I don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have a couch and two comfy chairs and you sit um, and uh, we get settled. And um, I usually just, I don't really know where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they filled out a ton of paperwork online with me, but still I, even though they just typed it all out, I just say, what brings you in today? Mm-hmm. And then I see where it goes. Um, and then I ask, a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. I, I will touch in the past if it looks like it's not a big deal. I don't mm-hmm. stay there. Um, I'll touch on their marriage if it looks like it's thriving. I don't stay there. So mm-hmm. I'm just I'm testing the waters of kind of every major aspect of their life, and where there's a lot of words coming out um, and a lot of emotions. Then you know we can camp out there. They pretty people are very smart. They mm-hmm. they kind of know what is happening. They're not coming in like I don't know what's going on with yeah. me. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm looking for frequency of episodes in their past. Um, what was their childhood like? Mm-hmm. And, um, and we go to the medication history, social history, drug and alcohol history. I get to ask all the questions, mm-hmm. uh, how they're sleeping, how they're eating. Um, who are their friends like? Do they have friends? Just anything you can think of. Um, I get a free pass to ask. So. Do you find that most people are honest or can you tell pretty quickly? I don't I don't think they're telling me the whole thing or there's some reluctance to trust. I'd say 95% of the time people are willing to tell me mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. because it, it took guts and to patience come. to come and to clear their schedule and to finally see a psychiatrist. Um, the other ones I can see through pretty quickly mm-hmm. and just tell them I'm not a good fit for them. Mm-hmm. But... but that's not the the majority of people are just yeah. good, ha- good people, yeah, yeah, who are just laying it all out because they are at the point where mm-hmm. they're willing to see somebody. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't bring up or any question you wanted me to ask that I didn't ask? Um, not really. Okay. We can talk about how great the church is. <laughs> Capital C Church is Capital great. Capital C Church it's, is doing just fine. Yeah, it's got a great head. <laughs> His name is Jesus. That's right. Andrea, I'm very, very thankful for you, who you are, who your family yeah. is, the way in which you seek to serve the Lord with the gifts he's given you. And thank you, thank you for the time. I know there there will be requests for more conversations like Absolutely. this. Um, someday I want to tell you about my experience with OCD personally ah. um, and just kind of what that was like because yeah. uh, my parents did nothing for me. Yeah. Um, and it was quite a story. So we'll have another can't wait to conversation that about one. that, especially yeah. as you've talked about that yeah. kind of on the rise too. For sure. Right. Well, thanks for having me. Uh-huh. Bless you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Deep Light Podcast from Park City's Presbyterian Church. We would love for you to be our guest this Sunday morning as we gather together for worship at 8, 9.30, or 11 a.m. We are located in the Uptown Dallas area at the corner of Oaklawn Avenue and Wycliffe Avenue. To find out more, please visit pcpc.org.